Welcome to the Back to Square One podcast with your host Chong and Kedrick. This is a podcast where we will have conversations about training, nutrition, and philosophy, taking you back to square one. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy. Welcome to the Back to Square Kwan podcast. And today is another special episode because we have a doctor in the house and a soon-to-be doctor, <laughs> uh, Kedrick himself, but Mr. Doctor, I want to address you by that, Derek Wilcox. Uh, welcome to the show. Um, for those who don't really know who he is, he is a very, very strong individual, has a big world record to his name. Think it still stands, or at least the first one to ever did it. A thousand pound squat, I believe. Yeah, I'm still the at still the lightest person to do it. One ninety eight. Uh, yeah, I weighed in at one ninety four. Oh, there you go, a bit more in the tank. Um, and obviously, not just being a very strong person, but a very smart individual himself, and a bit of a memester. And just before we continue, <laughs> Derek, this is uh, this is recorded, and I just want to make sure that you are wearing pants. Yes, I am. Good. Do you need me to stand up because, at some point? <laughs> uh, no, that will be okay. Just to make sure in case if you fidget around the camera, um, because we did have this conversation in an email. It's like, is pants allowed? I'm like, probably encouraged. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, no uh, welcome to the show, Derek. Welcome to the show. I appreciate it. It's an honor. Yeah. Um, t- I guess tell us a little bit about your background, like um, education-wise, obviously PhD and potentially, I think, some of your strength accolades as well um, far away. Sure, yeah. Um, I started with exercise science studies in undergrad and actually ended up with a religious studies degree from my undergrad. But then I went to my master's degree of kinesiology and sport performance. And then the PhD was in sport physiology. And during that entire time, while I was going through all the, the college years, I was competing in a plethora of different strength sports. I excelled in powerlifting the most, but I also did Highland Games and strongman competitions and Olympic weightlifting and things like that. So I I consider myself relatively well-rounded. While I was good at one thing, I hopefully didn't suck too much at the other three. (laughs) Nice. So yeah, I mean, definitely like participated in a like a host of strength sports. Uh, maybe you can share with us which is your favorite. I see right behind you there is an equip suit as well. So uh, share share with us a little bit about your maybe what's your favorite strength sport among all that you have mentioned and probably why. Well, I I would say honestly that the Highland Games were my favorite strength sport in general. One, because of the very unique nature of all the events. Um, If you just look at it from, you know, afar out of context, you have no idea what anybody is doing in a Highland Games event because it's just random stuff, it seems like. But they actually had really cool um, historical links to Scotland during England's occupation of that area. And the Highland Games events go all the way back to having events and a ways to train the Scottish warriors because they weren't allowed to have any weapons. So while they were being occupied at that time, so they couldn't rebel and they came up with those games to help train all the potential soldiers to be ready for war. If it ever came time for that, but 
Uh, also, the people are super, super unique and cool in the Highland Games. And you, there's no way, especially in America, at least, you can't take yourself overly seriously if you're walking around in a kilt. So <laughs> <laughs> that is that is true. Yeah, it's 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 just such a blast, though. But it, nothing will ever be able to compare to the the feeling of getting squished by you know 450 500 kilos on a squat though mm, yeah being the first one to do it as well is always uh is always a something a memorabilia if you will oh yeah to, for sure for life <laughs> yeah being being the lightest person to squat a thousand pounds i know it in everywhere outside of america the pounds thing doesn't really matter too much uh <laughs> and actually believe it or not i was kind of saved by the metric system because there was a guy who weighed in lighter than me who squatted an even 450 kilos, which is 992 pounds. So if he would have actually cared about the pound system instead of kilos, he might have beat it. But thanks to the metric system, <laughs> I still have the claim to fame. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Awesome stuff. Well, New yeah. Oh, Kedrick. So, sorry, I was just about to mention that New Zealand, I think last year, right? Uh, we had our f- like our first Highland Games, and I think everything was like all fun until the cable toss. Mm-hmm. Like apparently, like that is like a really really hard event. So correct me if I'm wrong, but for all the listeners out there, the cable toss essentially is like you just put like a large like a tree, <laughs> right, like a pole yes. on your hand, and you have to like flip it, right. So like for those that I for the five people that out there that potentially might watch this YouTube uh, <laughs> recording, like they have to flip it like sort of like 180-ish, right? And how do you measure like the points or how do you measure like what is a good toss in the caber toss? A, a perfect toss in the caber is called 12 o'clock. So it's not how far that you throw it. You have to pick it up from the ground after it's been stood up for you. You have, you basically interlock your fingers and, grab it and work down towards the bottom of the caber while the caber is, you know, usually around 20 feet tall and anywhere from, I guess, 50 to 65 kilos. That's an average one. Uh, But you have to pop it off the ground, lifting it quickly and then catch it, balance it by running around and chasing after the top end pretty much. And then once you have it balanced, and no one has died yet, you try to get a good running start (laughs) forward, abruptly stop and yank on the bottom of it as it's tipping over. So it doesn't matter how far it goes, like I said, but you want to flip it over as straight as possible. And a perfect score is 12 o'clock. And it's just like the the hour hands on the clock. If it's a little bit to the left, it'll be 11 o'clock. A little more to the left, it's 10 o'clock. It can go all the way to 9 o'clock, and then the same is the opposite on the the right side, 1, 2, 3 o'clock. And if you don't quite get a full term, there will be a side judge who estimates what degree that you were able to get the uh, the caber up to. Yeah, it, huh. it is all, it, it is all very interesting. Uh, like for those that don't know, like Google and or YouTube, like the cable toss in Highland Games, uh, it's pretty uh, crazy to watch. Uh, I mean, most of the events in the Highland Games are are pretty crazy. Yeah. So. <laughs> Those, uh, I mean, there's a lot of throwing, and it's it's all, it's all fun until you realize the thing or the object you throw just like drops right in front of you because it's just so heavy, and you're like, oh, cool! It's not actually 
like gonna fly that far, right? Then you'd be like, oh wow, I'm not actually that strong. So, or and obviously with the cable, there's some form of uh, skill involved as well. So, so so yeah, it's all all really like interesting, and it's it's also good to hear from you, like you know, uh, your experience squatting a thousand pounds. Um, so yeah, what would your kind of uh the lead up to that like how much have you had to prepare have you tried like squatting a thousand pounds before and fail or do you get it on your first go right or, and yeah maybe you can share with us uh that the story yeah yep sure yeah uh well if you go all the way back to when i started lifting i remember getting buried by uh, 60 kilos so it, that's where it started right when I'd gotten into high school and I'd already been lifting for a couple of years poorly, but I'd been lifting. Uh, but that was when I was a freshman in high school. So you, it's just building slowly up to that point, uh, very consistently. And not until I guess, 2009 did I ever take like two weeks off from training. And that was well, about a decade straight of never not training. It was just what I did, and I didn't know how to do anything else, honestly. Um, but leading up to the 1,000-pound squat, I did try to squat 1,005 at the Arnold Sports Festival for an XPC powerlifting meet, but I was I weighed in at like 215, I guess, which is, what, 90, 98 kilos or so. And I got squished by it there but I was planning on making the cut down to below 90 kilos for the next meet. And that was five months later. So I ended up weighing in 88 kilos or 194 pounds. And it was a really good day. I would training had gone very well and I had made some adjustments to my mechanics and everything really paid off very, very well. If you ever watch me squat, I have an extremely wide stance. I'm only mm. uh, five foot six, five foot seven. I don't know what that comes out to oh, in wow. centimeters, but my toes were almost to the edge of the monolift. That's a really wide base on those. And if you touch those, you're supposed to get red lit. So you're not able to get support from that. But someone being as short as me and going out that wide was relatively rare. I had to work on my hip mobility a ton. And to basically allow myself to keep a completely vertical torso where my shoulders were directly above my hips at all times. My knees were out almost 180 degrees, but I had to make the most of those leverages and all those technique oriented things, uh, keeping joints stacked as much as possible because someone my size, if you get a little bit bent over with that much weight, your face is just going to get driven oh. through the floor. So, and I've had a, a couple of close calls with that happening, but. Uh, I had to make sure absolutely, absolutely everything was perfect technique-wise. Mm. Just for context, um, five foot seven is about one hundred seventy centimeters. And um, for those who are listening, it's kind of about my height. But you have to give it a context. Like um, coming back to like the caber, I weigh basically about the caber. <laughs> and Derek here weighs <laughs> a lot more than me and clearly um, gaining weight or at least being a, at a heavier body weight, lean, massive, jacked, built like a fridge, uh, 
will allow you to squat that much weight. Well, I say that. Don't don't go into your backyard and try putting a thousand pounds. I wouldn't suggest anyone to do that from the get go. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. No. Uh, Probably not. One, one of the fun things to give you context on the squish factor of what that does to your spine. Uh, I was right around. Which would it be? I guess it was around twenty meters, twenty centimeters shorter when I had the weight on my back than when I was standing up before and after the lift, because I would have to set the squat rack a good six inches or so. So was that 12? I guess it's more like 15 centimeters, but they're about the, the compression on my spine would make me that much shorter while I was trying to squat that. Hmm. Yeah, that, that, that is pretty crazy. I think for all the, all, all, all the listeners out there, uh, done right the human body and the spine is quite robust you know i'm not asking everybody to squat uh go go put yourself to the limit and put a thousand pounds on your back and start measuring how much height you lose but that's just in 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 context you know like you don't really like unless if you want to get shorter hey by all means yeah yeah exactly You, you you don't really like uh uh your spine doesn't just like snap into two uh, immediately, right? So I'm not saying that people should try try it, but like just putting it in the context, you know, you see the body, the spine, it's quite robust and yeah, it takes it can take a lot of load. Obviously, uh, yeah, with some compensation in this instance hike, but for those listeners out there, don't fear, you know, lifting weights, it, when, lift, lifting 20 kilos, 100 kilos on the bar, would not break your spine into two. No, right? no, you, not at so, all. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely not, yeah. No, there's actual research so, that came from uh, the old Soviet Union when they were, had their sports schools, uh, and they started their youth off lifting weights relatively quickly. And I believe the results of that, which, I mean, they had samples of hundreds of thousands of kids growing up, and they actually grew up to be, on average, an inch taller than people in general population as they were lifting their entire their entire childhoods, oh, wow. so that that well, they, stunting so the growth is does, definitely. Does that mean? So so does that mean that um when eventually when the kids come along for listeners and those uh, we need to start to put them under a barbell basically as soon as possible then oh, maybe at the age of seven. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's that was actually part of uh, our PhD program, the proper developmental uh, procedures for having kids train and. As long as technique is good, you can actually load them pretty significantly without much risk. Uh, but as soon as technique starts breaking down, you know you, you obviously have to take weight off the bar and things like that. Technique always yeah. first. I, yeah, I, I think to put it in the context as well for all the listeners out there and those who are parents, or maybe if my mom is uh, listening and this is for my mom, you know that <laughs> made, like said that I'll say the reason why I'm not that tall is because I started lifting weights uh, when I was like 17, you know, that, that this is probably it was, not, it, it, it was, it was, It's probably too late, Kedrick. Like we're talking yeah. like seven, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. Shout out to mom. Late. Yeah. Like if you think about it, like sports in general is probably a little bit more dangerous, right? For overall like development of a child just because there probably is higher risk of injury because no matter how much you can uh, control yourself you cannot control let's say if it's a contact spot right you can't control someone 
ramming Tack, into you, yeah, right? right? Getting tackled, right? Or you can't. And the the fact is that you almost cannot control for everything, even non-contact sports like uh badminton, like a twist, like twisted ankles, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, sports that require like shuffles from the side, shuffle from side to side, basketball, volleyball, badminton, you know, like that there are a lot of faults involved. So lifting is actually, like you said, lifting down right is actually a much more controlled environment and probably less detrimental to uh overall development of a child uh, as he or she is growing. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, There's actually lots of research on that with injury rates in different sports and uh, weightlifting is at the very, very bottom of the list with likelihood of injury. So it's one of the safest things you can ever have your kid do. Yeah, I think, you know, as sort of the, as society sort of grows and sort of evolves over the last couple of years, we see that uh, I think more and more prevalent you know, it used to be, oh, go play, go play sport, pick up a ball, pick up a rugby, throw it, whatever, go for a run. But, you know, at least in the last five to 10 years, there is a very, very big, huge focus on sort of like, cool, like you play sport, but you also need to go into the weight room, you know, like at least like, you know, twice a week just to get some type of GPP in, especially Mm -hmm. for young budding athletes, you know, and we see that a lot, especially in this day and age where, a lot of these athletes are freaks of nature on, on the field, but then when they go into a weight room, they're kind of pretty freaky. Yeah. <laughs> you see these young guys, you know, and, and this is where all the sort of, I guess, sub-junior, junior powerlifters, you know, and then strongmen start to, you know, they start to see some, I guess, people like Derek, you know, they start to, hey, you know what, I like the sport, I'm good at the sport, but I'm actually genetically been gifted the gift of strength. Uh, why not put it to good use? Yeah. Well, when I was, when I was playing other sports, uh, one of my main sports was American football. Uh, so I played that since I was, I guess in fourth grade, but I played, you know, basketball and other things too, but being around 170 centimeters tall, I, I didn't have much of a future in basketball. Definitely didn't help me in strongman. If I can tell you that. Um, but in football, I was never one of the biggest guys on the field at all. I was short and relatively light. I only weighed about 70 kilos when I graduated high school. So I was never able to do much like that. But what, any chance that I had to make up for it by being fast was also gone because I was actually not quick at all. So I just really fell behind in the, the talent aspect for the sport that I liked the most. But I was really excelling in the weight room. Uh, for whatever reason, when I saw it and proper technique, I could pick it up quickly. And there was just something special about that direct correlation to how much work you were putting in to a number going up in all the lifts. Mm. Cause we were, you know, we trained very similar to powerlifting even when I was in high school, cause I had a really good coach who had experience in that. Um, I, I don't know if he always knew exactly why we were doing what we were doing or what the effects were, but he was, he was doing the right things. To, to help keep us strong and do it in a safe way. So I was very fortunate with that. And honestly, we hear about elite level coaches working with Olympians and things like that. Anybody can take someone who has elite genetics and make a world champion. Basically all you have to do is keep training them and keep them from getting hurt. That's, that's the biggest obstacle when you're working with kids. That's where you really need elite level coaches to be able to figure out how to get somebody who doesn't know what they're doing at all and also doesn't have much of an attention span uh, who, who's just looking to get in trouble and mischief and all that. 
and get them to where they can train properly and you know execute movements that are relatively complex and require a lot of coordination when their bodies are the least coordinated they're going to be in their entire lives so shout out to all the youth coaches out there who really take their job seriously and went and got educated had internships to learn how to properly do it because that that is where you really need the best coaches 100 so from what it sounds like um like you mentioned as well understanding the ability to coach different populations is very important i think when it comes to kids it's definitely mm-hmm. hard especially i would say the demand of uh the day Attention. and age. Yeah, right now, I would say uh, to give something to a kid nowadays, or at least uh, something more like traditional, like sports or uh, training in the weight room gets progressively harder, right? Due to the fact that you, you have a lot of like different um, environmental factors, you know, like potentially uh, kids now have poorer attention span mm-hmm. uh, like being distracted with uh, with tech right uh, probably higher amounts of like uh, social pressure as well uh, obviously uh, social media tech contributes to one of it uh, uh, and things like I want to try new training stuff right like novel things you know like back in the day you'd probably be like cool whatever my coach says this is right but now uh, a teen or someone who is probably even younger can go online and say, cool, let's look up some other training, new training method. Right. And I want to try something new. Right. So getting them to stick to a plan is actually uh, very uh, difficult. Not, not, not to mention, I think uh, the IPF recently announced a partnership with like this, uh, this online app called Braun, where essentially you put your lifts in and then they have like a rating system where they would, say like oh your, your training session at this intensity at this gives you x amount of points and every week there's a leaderboard so i'm, I'm not exactly sh- i mean i might be misrepresenting exactly how it works but from what i have looked at the social media posts uh it, this is what it seems so like things like this like for me as a coach already dealing with like uh like power lifters who like as young as like 18 19 lives i say oh my gosh this is so bad i already have such a hard time trying to get them not to overshoot in their programs. You know, now with this, everybody want to overshoot every single training session because, yeah, obviously the lead, the leaderboard for every week is going to be there, yeah. right? You always have something. Now you have something so-called absolute, uh, some absolute standard to work up towards. But the fact is that everybody's training block in relation to the competition throughout the year is very different. So the person that's peaking might get higher score and someone who is doing like a volume preparatory block would be further away, right? And, that could potentially just like your score would probably be lower, right? That's this is an example. I'm not saying that the formula doesn't aggregate for that. I'm not sure how it works, but just looking at different training phases, uh, it could potentially like make like upset the training plan if you go, uh, if you overshoot or you go off plan too often, you know. And now with new tech like this, a scoring system like this, uh, going, uh going off program more often has been incentivized if you are comparing it with the rest of the world. So I'm not, <laughs> not, not, not sure how I feel about, about, about things like this. But one thing I've no- noticed as well is that uh, maybe you can share a little bit of, about this regarding your, your experience uh, that as an, a high-level lifter or also as a coach, right, uh, that elite athletes, not only of the potential 
and someone has to be elite doesn't just rely in the physical right the, in the genetic but i think the mental aspect as well is is very important they would probably know that i have to keep my eyes on the prize right as uh, uh dan john would, would say the goal is to keep the goal the goal right i have to stay on track right i think uh that is part and parcel of uh an elite mindset right uh i don't know what do you think what do you uh, think uh, in your experience how has that been like uh, for you or even during your coaching career well it was honestly it was really easy for me I, was, I grew up very introverted very quiet uh, I was an awkward kid there's no real way around that one um, I did not I never felt like I fit in with the folks around me at all I grew up in a really small town where everybody was related to everybody else and I was not in that little family circle so it was it was difficult for me to kind of find a place in that social setting. So it was tough for quite a while, but it also helped me gain my observational skills. So I was sitting back. I wasn't talking. I was just observing and trying to learn. And if you can sit back and learn from other people's mistakes, it will save you a lot of time, especially in sports, from getting injured or just taking bad um, bad strategies in general and things like that. So I really benefited from watching a lot of other people and just staying quiet. Um, but when you're working with all kinds of different people in different populations, whether it's kids or the elderly people with incredible genetics that want to go to the Olympics or people who don't have the genetics to squat their way out of a paper bag, uh, you have to first have your people skills equipped, ready to work with those people, find where their mindset is initially. Because if you if you can't make that connection with what their priorities are first and how much they are willing to invest into their, their fitness or their training goals, competition goals, whatever, you have to be on the same page with that, without a doubt, most important priority number one. And past that, figuring out how to not necessarily trick them, but figure out how to put them in the best situation to have them giving the most effort to where it's enjoyable for them, hopefully. And they're able to invest more into themselves because as a coach, you're not facilitating them working for you. You're facilitating them working for themselves. So figuring out how to work with every individual that you come across is, is definitely the biggest skill in coaching, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, that's very well put, right? Like, and, you know, for those who don't know, Derek works um, for RP Renaissance Periodization. And, you know, a lot of the, you know, I think, particularly, I think in the last year or so, because with, with COVID and, and all that has happened, you know, RP used to be like a place where, you know, athletes will reach out to coaches to to get their shit sorted, right? For training and nutrition. But, you know, I've, I've followed RP very, very closely because I, you know, been coached by a couple of coaches on RP, used a lot of products, great stuff. Um, but over the last year, we see a big, you know, at least in my eyes, from from like an outsider's consumer's perspective, we see like a big surge of like what I would say gen pop, you know, coming into RP. And um, for those who don't know, the RP has obviously an RP client Facebook group. And I know you post a lot of memes on there. <laughs> <laughs> we'll dive into that a little bit. But, but, but we see that there's a lot of, there's a big surge of like gen pop coming into a, a product with um, that might not have initially set out to be marketed to the gen pop, but 
because of COVID and everything. Um, that's the way it is, right? Business is business, no doubt. So how, I guess, in in your case, particularly with, with your one-on-one coaching, Derek, like, do you feel that coaching, I guess, let's call them athletes for the sake of it, coaching athletes is a lot easier than coaching gen pop? Or do you feel like just because gen population people are coming into the into like a, I need to get my health sorted, they're coming in with like a very, I guess, jujitsu standpoint, like a white belt mentality. It's like, you tell me what to do, I'll do it. Versus an athlete, like what Kedrick said, oh, you know, this this guy is doing, doing this. Coach, why, why, why am I not doing a, you know, RP9 single every single week? when I am 52 weeks out from my next meet. (laughs) Why am I not doing that? (laughs) You know, like, this guy's doing it. Why am I not doing it, coach? You've been working with me for five years now. Versus someone who's come in, it's like, hey, look, um, I'm 30 pounds overweight. Yeah, I haven't exercised for the last five years. I don't know what to do. Help. Like, do you find that it's a lot easier to work with, I guess, gen pop in that sense, just because they, I guess, for for, for better or for worse terms, have a more virgin mindset compared to like, athletes who come in like having that, you know, not like you because, you know, uh, having a learning mindset is always important, but coming in with like, oh, I know something already. Let me challenge the professional because I have a level of understanding. Absolutely. Do you, yeah. how, how do you find that? Yeah. There, there are a couple of primary variables and there's sub variants off that for sure. But when you look at motivation, Motivation is something you can't really instill in someone. Even if you're a coach working with an athlete who wants to go to the Olympics, you can't make them motivated. That has to come intrinsically from the athlete. So that factor from both populations, gen pop and the athletic population, that you you see a lot more motivated athletes, but a lot of the more gifted athletes that I've ever been around lacked motivation. And eventually, uh, a lot of them end up falling off. And the people who just have more longevity, not necessarily the, the physical genetic traits, really end up passing them because of that fact. Uh, and it, there are a lot of genetic factors for mindset as well. But when you think about general population, everyone has different personality types. Some are more agreeable than others. Some are more willing to have help than others. Uh, thankfully, the people that sign up for coaching are, you know, kind of by definition, ready for more help. And that's great. Uh, I have a lot of people that have worked with me for many years at this point. So I've, I've worked with RP since 2014. And I've got a few clients that have been around almost that long. <laughs> but I actually have a planned obsolescence in my coaching practice, where if people really want to know how to do the ins and the outs of all the different training phases and nutrition, how to put it all together, you can do that. And I'll answer all the questions. And one day you feel so confident that you're ready to move on and handle everything by yourself. Like, hey, that's the greatest thing in the world to me. But I approach things, I think, a little bit different, whether it's an athletic client or it's gen pop. My focus is always on increasing their quality of life. And for athletes, that means comp- competitive success. And we will do everything together to facilitate that and make sure that their mental health is still there because I know what it's like to be completely depressed as a competitive athlete. Um, and you can drive yourself into a deep hole. It's not good. And there are plenty of horror stories of people that don't know how to get out of those situations. So that's always one of my top priorities. It's kind of the uh, Hippocratic Oath. The first one, first, first part of that is to do no harm. So that that's always number one priority. 
with general population, you have your own motivational sides to that too. But the the equation for how to get to where they want to go is much simpler. When you have a beginner, the you know the, the methods are much simpler, and the trick is being able to teach those methods in the most simplistic way. I've told people forever one of the easiest ways to tell a veteran coach compared to a new coach is a new coach will coach you to death. They will never stop talking. They'll go over every single detail that they know about, you know, any certain thing they're trying to coach. And a veteran coach will most of the time say one thing and let them let the athlete go or whoever they're working with go and try it. And then they'll give them one tweak because if you throw the kitchen sink at someone uh, as far as lifting theory and techniques, and I need you to do these 10 things all at once really well, uh, they're going to get overwhelmed and it's going to be really hard. Everybody gets frustrated and it's just not good. But as far as coaching cues go, veteran coaches know how to say really, really simple things. It's easy to process. And the better you get at it, the more those little coaching cues change in context. And it also goes back to those people skills. What are they familiar with? Can you make an analogy to what they're doing all the time in, in their work or their hobbies or things like that? If I've got a car mechanic as a client, I'm going to be making car analogies. If I've got, you know, I don't know what else. If I have an engineer, you know, I'll, I'll try to make some physics analogies or something like that. Whatever they can process the best and you can get your message across, translate it into the best way that's packaged for their mind, then that's, that's how you really get the general population. In that case, communicating with athletes is super easy because most of them are very, very similar. So you can actually focus on the sport that you're talking about. You don't need to come up with any fantasy analogies. You just, this is what it is and go. Yeah, 100%. I think something that you mentioned that really hits home is, like say a veteran coach would be able to provide uh, a coaching cue or advice that's useful and simplistic enough. Often when I kind of explain how I coach for, uh, to my my athletes or people who would potentially sign up or just in general, like what's your coaching f- philosophy when it comes to nutrition? I say I usually it, it, it usually goes something along the lines of uh, I believe e- eating uh, is, is a habit, right? Eating is uh, part of being human because you can stop training, you can stop exercising, but you cannot stop eating unless obviously you have a death wish, you know, after right, yeah. a while, uh, you after a while of not eating, you'll probably die. So because of that, you can see it's driven by like, necess- like necessary human uh, nature <clears throat> and it, it, it is very habitual. And uh, what we're trying to do now is trying to incorporate new eating habits that would result in, like you said, long-term uh, health, right? Whether that, that health comes in the form of performance or just uh, just health in general, right? And the thing is, right now you have a certain habit and you require a change. But change by definition is not a habit, right? Because... A habit is something that you don't change. That's what you've been right, doing. Yeah. So, but now you now you need some form of change. So in my head, I'll be like, cool. The smaller the change, or the closer the change is to the habit, the the easier we can make that change into a habit in the future. So that's what I usually tell people because I find, like I said, if you throw the kitchen sink, you know, uh, how much 
can will the the athlete pick up Absolute, you know yeah. when it comes to when it comes to eating they come with a with a i think another thing that is really good uh, uh a good coach does as well is that every gen pop athlete like you mentioned they come in with a very very different background and not only does the athlete, the veteran coach know um know the best for that athlete but the the coach knows how to process the background information in which that gen pop uh, client presents you know because everybody's going to be different you know like i said uh, uh, the lifestyle of a mechanic would be very different from an engineer or what the lifestyle let's say for a stock trader right the pers- people that are in front of the computer the whole time right would be very different from someone who is on their feet right maybe a bricklayer right so uh most of the time all that information is very different and you have to kind of apply that context uh, to very different individuals and figure out what's best. And I think that the ability for a coach, like you say, I think that this is probably why you you kind of like you are able to make that distinction because you said when you were younger, you just take a step back and observe, right? And I think too often than not, like you said, a young coach would just want to coach, 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 coach before, before actually observing, you know, whereas the veteran coach would be like, cool, let's actually see. And the thing I... I find with nutrition is that it's very uh, organic in the sense that if I provide this, uh, I provide this um, cue or this recommendation, right? The way the person change, you think that, cool, I'm going to provide this two weeks or three weeks down the road, I'm going to say this. But after providing this, you might not need to, you can't or you might not need what to, what you wanted to do three weeks down the, the line because the person as a whole change as they adopt something so new, I think that has that is something I have found in my personal experience coaching uh, general population do you do you is it does that ring true with your experience as well yeah for sure uh, when you you're talking about being selective with your coaching cues actually one of the things that's universal from athletic populations to gin pop uh, really anything else anyone who's in the weight room if you, you can actually gain a lot of trust very, very quickly if you can tell them either what they are feeling or what they are about to feel from an adjustment and technique. Uh, one of the easiest ones or the most significant ones uh, is generating hamstring tension by arching your lower back, like in a, a stiff leg deadlift or Bulgarian deadlift or whatever you guys call it in New Zealand. I'm sure it's something else. <laughs> I know they don't call it Bulgarian deadlifts in Bulgaria. So who knows? Um, but yeah, with the tight arched back, pulling the hips into a good anterior tilt and you go down, you start pulling a lot more t- tension into the hamstrings and whatever movement that you're doing, whether it's squats, deadlifts, whatever. And that's one of the things that I can focus on with any lifter, whether it's remote or doing online video review for clients or having someone in person is if you do this movement, you do it properly, you will feel this. And when they go do it, you see their face light up. They're like, Oh, I just made that connection. And that's one of the more hard things to do coordination wise, because uh, most gen pop, especially we're seated a lot. Uh, and as people get older, they start flexing at the spine to do daily tasks, like picking things up off the floor. It's um, it's actually one of the 
primary reasons you see old men not have asses anymore. They just fall right off and their pants won't stay up. And that's actually why their low back gets weak. They're seated all the time or they're laying down. The postural strength goes away and you're not stimulating those hip extensor muscles anymore because your low back controls the position of your hips and allows them to be in position to contract and be stimulated. So that's when you can really start making connections with people about what they're feeling and what they're about to feel. Uh, that, that really helps in coaching a whole lot. And it's a really simple approach. If you can just pick one feeling like hamstring tension, or if you change your position in a bench press, you're going to feel it a lot more tension in your pecs or another big one for pressing in general. If you get your shoulders pulled back into proper position and you squeeze your lats down, your shoulders are going to be super secure, but I don't want you to think about how secure your shoulders are. Your lats are probably going to start cramping up if you do this right. And they're going to be sore the next day because it's really, really rare that we ever do that movement in everyday life. So anytime you can connect with someone on that level, not only do they trust you a lot more, but they're learning much faster as well. Yeah. I mean, I can definitely relate to the, uh, to the lat cramps. Yeah. <laughs> um, as, as a powerlifter, you probably know this. We don't do a lot of pulling movements in our programs. Well, we try to at least right. we say we do it. We don't. <laughs> <laughs> and then you go into a bench, you're like, okay, it's uh, time to go into my first attempt. And you actually like, you get into like this hypersensitive state of like, fuck, I need to fucking lock everything in. And as you bench, you're like, oh shit, the weight feels really light. And then, and then your your coach, your handler, shout out Jason, is like, how did that feel? It's like, oh, fuck, my lats were cramping. <laughs> You're like, yeah. I don't know. You know. It's not my shoulders. Are, my shoulders are fine. You know, my yeah. back feels fine. It's not sore. It's <laughs> lats are just, oh. So, so, yeah, definitely a very interesting, um, well, not really interesting. I think that's a very, very good point that you made, Derek. I think a lot of, I guess, the simplicity of coaching really comes down, really boils down to just, I think I, th- I guess the key word there really is speaking the language of your client, right? And I think one hundred percent. That's that's like the big key because, um, you know, um, I do coach obviously powerlifters and a lot of young guys, but um, I also do coach a lot of people who are like older, like 40, 50, you know, who, who are not athletes, you know, who are very very gym pop. And one thing that I always say it's like, look, um, the analogy is like a fucking dishwasher. At some point, you're gonna have to wipe your dishwasher, and you need to fucking take out the filter and clean it, or it's just gonna go to shit. And you're like, oh, I think of that. It's like, yeah, yeah, I'm not gonna talk to you. <laughs> you know, it's not about it's not about how your 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 heart functions. It's just you know, at some point, if you think of yourself as a dishwasher, that's gonna happen, and you know, we make that relation. So, I, I guess. More, I guess, more specifically with the clientele that you coach, or I guess people that you coach in general, I guess this is like a meme in itself, but potentially even an actual real question is like, do you actually feel like you need to keep up with the, I guess, generational language, you know, just to sort of be in that position to speak the language of your client? Um, you know, for those who do follow Derek on Instagram, he is someone who kind of posts memes every occasionally um which can be funny don't, don't get me wrong but one thing that rings very true in the email that he replied to me it's like you know it is the language of the kids yeah and if and if you post a meme yeah it's funny haha hilarious tee xd skeletal <laughs> but it's like oh shit um that makes sense yes i, I do um, i'm not just and, out and there tossing you, yeah. around memes for no reason uh, everything that i post i do try to make you know 
important context to whether it's fitness or nutrition or lifestyle changes or things like that. Uh, even just the mentality of trying to improve yourself as a person. Uh, it's never just, Hey, look at this. It's funny. It's like, there's, there's a moral to the story. I promise. Even though what you just looked at picture wise was completely ridiculous, but it, it's very important to me to be able to spread good messages along with those things. Yeah, for sure. I think that now, because like we mentioned just now, we are, we, we are kind of in the, the digital day and age, right? So everything we kind of like put out there contains like a certain set of information and memes are one way to get information across for people who can relate to them, you know? Like, for example, I'm not sure if you noticed, but recently the Blue's Clues meme meme is all over the place, yep. right? <laughs> Derek's like, write it. Derek's yeah. writing this down. It's like, yeah. yes, my next people, voice. <laughs> people be like, yeah, ba- yeah, you know, it's one of... But people who don't watch Blue's Clues, they have, would have no idea because they cannot relate to the meme, right? And then there was a meme, like, before that, I, uh, I'm i not sure if you see, you've watched uh, uh, Invincible, right? That That animated... TV show where you know the powerlifters always put like oh look what they have to achieve uh, look what they yeah, have to do to right, achieve right. a fraction of our power like you don't really understand it until you watch that right so I guess memes nowadays are a sort of a general portrayal of the current uh pop like popular culture, pop culture you know? yeah. and I guess if you can kind of like translate messages it is relevant to specific groups of people but not uh, other groups of people you know so I guess, like you said, you don't really just like, yeah, sure, sometimes we can just put memes out there for fun, you know, but most of the time, if we actually try to actually uh, convey what uh, memes uh, actually tell, right, for specific people, it's not actually, you, you kind of have to think, and I guess it, you probably need like creative juices to flow as well. When it comes to uh, like, I guess, like you said, when it comes to coaching athletes, especially uh, athletes, they are very like goal-driven. You know, they just like, yeah, go, 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 right? This is the goal. I have to hit it. But you also mentioned just now the aspect of like mental health as well. So when do you, how do you balance, right? The mm, aspect of uh, having that mental health and versus allowing the athlete to uh, reach that reach their goals because I would kind of argue that all high level athletes are obsessed to a certain level, right? So I guess for you, especially when it comes to eating, right? I think that being obsessed with training, uh, probably uh, as long as you're not like hurting yourself or not overtraining. And now we know research actually shows that overtraining per se, is actually not as easy as what people used to think, you know? Uh, uh, But when it comes to nutrition, how do you prevent people from being like, cool, all I'm going to eat it's the same thing every day. Five, five protein shakes meal, a day. You know, <laughs> hit my protein target. That's it. <laughs> but yeah, like I'm we've with. I mean, uh, working at RP as well. You, you. Uh, I mean, you all have like Gabby, Gabby Fundero, who like probably talks about gut health all the time. Like mm-hmm. I don't really know much, but I know that eating a variety of food can is just good because from my head, it's like yeah, cool. Your gut microbiome probably adapts, adapt to the things you put in. So if you have a variety of food, that your your gut microbiome adapts, but let's just say this obsessed athlete just eats the same thing all the time, right? And cannot stray from the so-called plan. How, what would your approach be to balancing? Cool. I want to, I know you want to hit your goals. Those are important, but I also want to ensure that 
you are in some way having a slightly more holistic approach for the uh, lack of a better term. Yeah, um, everyone's so incredibly individualistic with that. Uh, I've known many athletes who can't, they can't really process not being extremely regimented with their nutrition and their training. It's probably bordering on obsessive compulsive disorder to a certain degree. But when they have control over that, it's a very simple psychological theory about, you know, when you don't feel like you have control over much of your life, you find things to obsess over and control, whether it's making sure everything's exactly where it's supposed to be, you know, silverware is lined up completely you know, parallel and perpendicular. All, everything's a right angle, certain numbers of things uh, being um, present or, you know, how things are arranged and nutrition can very easily become one of those things. Uh, if you have a lot of personal strife, whether it's, you know, an abusive relationship or other trauma that might have happened in your life, you grab control of those things. And if you obsess over and you control them, it can actually be a form of solace in a way. So I've definitely seen that be a positive thing, but I've also seen it be a very negative thing. Uh, People who are maybe instead of enjoying the process and being goal-driven, it's more linked to their self-esteem. Like if they fail at this, they fail at life and they obsess over it that way. And that's not usually a very sustainable approach mentally. So it just goes back to really getting to know your, your clients or athletes and figuring out what really makes them tick. Uh, fortunately, I, I also have a minor in psychology. So I was introduced to a lot of those different theories, and I try to keep up with that. We were talking about memes earlier. That, that I believe that term actually came from Dr. Richard Dawkins, the evolutionary biologist. And I have his books on memes. So when actual memes popped up, I was like, why are you guys talking about the work of Dawkins? It just doesn't make any sense. It's just cartoons and <laughs> words and stuff. But yeah, uh, I got a little off topic there. But really getting them- No, no, no. That's good. <laughs> off topic is good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, getting to know the, the people that you're working with and seeing, really trying to pay attention to their body language and how they're talking and what their attitudes are over time. Uh, you can start to get a really good idea of what is sustainable for them individually and what's not. Uh, I have tons of clients that I really have to rein back nutrition plans for or training plans. They need to be much simpler. They can't go as long in the gym due to other life stresses or things like that. And some people want to train every single day and they want to eat eight meals a day. So it's really all about communication, having a little bit of empathy for sure and finding the not just the best method, but the most practical method for those people. Mm, Very, very well put. Like everyone's going to be different, you know, um, especially, you know, when people sign up for coaching, um, I guess this is more geared to those who are seeking nutrition or training coaching. One thing that you probably need to also understand, and I'm sure at least the three of us who have probably been involved in coaching and also received coaching is like you kind of just have to be very honest with 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 people as Kedrick said maybe with you know training yeah sure over training probably what really happened you know unless if you're really some type of psychopath <laughs> but with nutrition um there is a lot of you know psychological factors that go into it 
And, you know, from the get-go, um, again, everyone's different. If you are going to be very honest and say, hey, look, I do have, you know, whatever. For Let's just throw examples out there, right? Body dysmorphia or, you know, a bully, a bulimic in the past or whatever. You know, at least it, it enables the, the coach, at least from the get-go, to understand, okay, like, simple might not even cut it. It might even be taking a step back to just be, let's just be empathetic. And then when we get past that, I guess when the individual brings down the walls a little bit more, then we can start to say, okay, cool. I understand, you know, why not, you know, try this or, you know, try that. You know, and I think um, to a lot of coach, I would like to hope that most coaches out there this day and age um, will have at least some level of empathy. Because I think if you are a coach and, you know, like what Derek and Kedrick said, if you are a coach with a, with a plan in mind to say, cool, like this client wants to lose 30, 30 pounds, this is the macros, you know, this is whatever, the keto diet for the 16 to 8 window and fasting, <laughs> uh, you know, two days out of five in a week, let's go. And then you, you get a client who you say, okay, this is the entire plan, but you don't really get to understand them. And they're like, actually, you know, in the past, I was bulimic. You basically just set off an atomic bomb in the head right? <laughs> you know, by, by, by basically <laughs> just prescribing here's a here's a five on two off meal plan it's like what the fuck Why, you know like so i think um great great point there derek i think um empathy yeah i think empathy to your clients and to your athletes um and understanding as an athlete and a, as a as a client of another coach as well it's like you know most coaches give them the benefit of the doubt that they genuinely do want to empathize with you yeah. um that's probably why they either you you reached out to them because there was probably some level of relationship through their posting through the way of you know they write their instagram posts whatever it might be or the way they do their videos um that you probably have related to it at some point and that's probably you know being open to them can be beneficial in in, in many cases yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the really important things with coaching in person or remotely, it doesn't matter. You want to ask a lot of questions and get as much feedback from your client or athlete as you can, because even if it's not anything to do with training or eating, I ask people about their lives. Um, people think I'm just asking about random BS probably, but if you ask how life is going in general, you start to get feedback on their stress level their general mental approach to different things in life. And you just, the more you can learn about a person as an individual, the better you can coach them because you can learn what those little triggers might be, um, what things they view as sources of reward. Um, just, just there's unlimited potential for just communicating with the people that you work with, whether it's related to what you're doing specifically task-wise or not. Um, but get, being able to be someone who they can talk to and ask questions of and feel completely comfortable doing so, I think that's, that's definitely one of the more important aspects of coaching in general. 100%. Yep. I think it's also very interesting because, um, yeah, you mentioned meme, obviously. Uh, like I know meme was coined by Richard Dawkins, right? In the book, uh, the, the Selfish Gene, mm-hmm. 1976. But like I just looked up the definition and the definition is basically said a meme is an idea behavior or style that spreads by means of imitation from person to person within a culture and often carries symbolic meaning representing a particular phenomenon or theme right so mm-hmm. obviously that that kind of like 
they use use it to kind of explain uh like evolutionary biology how the gene replicate mutate and stuff like that but if you think about it right like as coaches we kind of have to be we have to be like a meme you know in <laughs> this context because nowadays if you go to people on the street they say oh you're a meme it's almost like an insult like you're you're a joke right, right, right. Yeah, but yeah. if but right now if i like, say like oh cool i'm a coach i'm a i'm a meme i am basically trying to say that i'm trying to spread some form of meaning and uh from person to person within a specific culture uh with us using particular f- phenomenon or theme meaning that yeah cool i basically am having empathy and i'm adapting that information to you right so uh it basically also says that supporters of the concept regard memes as cultural analogs to genes in that they self-replicate mutate and respond to selective pressures uh so i would say that the selective pressure is kind of the athlete itself right the constraint that the athlete sets based on his or her background that they come when they start coaching and we as sort of like memes we kind of like yeah, we have to kind of adapt to that, you know. Uh, so yeah, for sure. That's a little bit of a, a little bit of like the thought because I, 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 I think that you kind of like gave away your age here because if you talk to people and if the, <laughs> the, the first instance when you say memes and you go to uh, Richard Dawkins, right? People be like, "What? Like yeah, who, who's I mean, that?" <laughs> yeah, not nineteen seventy six, right? That's yeah, that's a pretty, pretty long time ago, you know, uh, but. <laughs> uh, I mean, it might not be your age. It just might be your wealth of uh, knowledge. Uh, Probably. But- pro- let, let's go with the wealth of knowledge. Yeah. Right. Let's go with the wealth. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm 34, yeah. so it's not too crazy old. But uh, memes were just starting to become a, a prevalent thing when I was going through my undergrad. And I was studying all these uh, all the psychology classes and the rest of religious studies, which was actually a secular study of the phenomenon of religion. So we had psychology of religion and sociology, psychosocial dynamics, along with the theological classes as well. But we really studied it from a scientific perspective, uh, social theory as well. Uh, we, I even took a full year on Marxist theory, understanding where that came from and the applications thereof. But from, yeah, <laughs> uh, Dawkins, the memes basically parallel genes. It was just... You know, they were ideas instead of traits from alleles in your DNA, but they propagate in very similar ways. They go through different selection pressures, like you were saying, and they're weeded out. And the uh, the more hopefully advantageous ones hang around uh, the longest, and that's what helps shape our culture. But uh, if if uh, being a meme as a coach is uh, means that I get to survive and hang out in culture and I'm still prevalent, then yeah, sure. I'll, I'll, t- I'll be a survival. It's, it's not, it's, it's, <laughs> it's definitely not, it's definitely not the worst thing in the world to be a meme. I mean, there's probably worse things to yeah. be in the world. And I think uh, I've seen some being, pretty trash memes, being, but I mean, you know, <laughs> Prob- yeah, probably I'm, means that they're trash creators, which means they're trash coaches as well. Right. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll draw that parallel. Sure. <laughs> draw the parallel for sure. Hey, if the quality of the content's bad, yeah. oh, surely there's something wrong with the individual. Yeah. So ha- yeah. How many world records, how many degrees is your coach? No, 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 no. Yeah. Let me see his meme page. Let's, let's see what's really going yeah, on there. That's, that's... <laughs> true. Yeah. True. It, uh, it, it is very interesting like you mentioned all of this I think looking at your, your background it gives you like a wealth of like knowledge or information to relate to people I think you mentioned a little bit of like Marxist uh, 
Marxist ideology as well. And uh, not, I'm not. This podcast uh, is not to to support or criticize it. I'm not an expert, and I don't think it. Uh, yeah, I'll prob- the, it goes beyond the scope of this podcast. But like one of the the basically the primary form of getting people to uh, adopt. Uh, Marxist ideology is to get them to relate to the proletariat, right? Which is right. like the working class, and then to say that oh, cool, right? There's this bunch of bourgeoisie, uh, bourgeoisie people, uh, so-called oppressing us, and because we're the proletariat, we have to stand up against them. So it's actually getting people to relate to your cause, right? Uh, and I think that's that 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 is pretty much uh, with most things, and with nutrition as well. The closer you can get uh, them to relate, mm-hmm. right? The 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 higher likelihood. Uh, of adherence and yeah, acceptance of, of the methodology, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, if you look at, at culture across time as well, it, it happens uh, like that because obviously Marxism failed because when you go to like... Uh, Mar- uh, look, when you, they didn't take into account the middle class and then obviously with the neo-Marxists, they look at the middle class problems and get people to relate to that as well and those are more like social factors. So yeah, I think at the end of the, the, the day, you kind of... The, the more you can get people to relate... Uh, the better you would be able to get them to adopt something, and I think that that is that is really the message when it comes to uh, nutrition and understanding how to get someone to relate to something, especially such an abstract concept. I think the thing with general population as well is that whether I think getting them to understand right, cool, your rate of muscle gain shouldn't be should be pretty slow if you don't want to get fat, but which means that on a week-to-week basis, especially if your goal is lean gains, you probably would not see much progress at all, right? Mm-hmm. So to get them to relate to a concept so abstract, so far away, makes it challenging for the coach. And the more like so- so-called surrogate markers that you can actually uh, establish, like for example, I think now a good sign of hypertrophy would be the ability to increase weights across like moderate to high rep range uh, uh, sets, right? Not just like one rep maxes because obviously the role of the central nervous system plays a bigger role there compared to uh, the ability to increase weights across multiple sets at high repetition range because then the contractile tissue uh, would probably play uh, a larger role. So right, things like that, obviously explaining it to them not in the in a scientific manner but getting them to relate helps them stay on track especially when they see that their goals are so far away right yeah it's and basically saying like next week you add one set <laughs> you can do yes. the one set you go big <laughs> you can't do one set you no go big <laughs> yes exactly. and they're like oh shit it makes sense whereas if you just basically if Kedrick you basically said that to, to an athlete and you know let's say they're from like a like a finance background they're like what the hell did he just said in the last 10 <laughs> seconds it's like <laughs> yeah definitely and i, I think yeah. that goes back into uh coaching strategies in general but when you're we're talking about people who are marxist or just anyone who has a different worldview than you if you break it down to, okay, these people believe this set of ideologies or just one ideology or whatever, it's not about, okay, you don't just label them as they're a Marxist or they're a capitalist or they're a socialist. Or If you back up and zoom out farther than that, this is where empathy comes in as a human being, hopefully, not just as a coach. But, okay, <laughs> here's, the, here's the real question. What is their intent? Despite all the methods and the ideas that they have, what is their intent? What is the end goal that they're really reaching for? Now, the worldview may not be exactly in line as far as what you think will work, 
but I am yet to find anyone outside of some kind of like nationalist fascist, you know, like a basically a Nazi type character who believes in some kind of supremacy of one race over another, blah, 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 or something similar. Everyone I've ever met who has these different ideologies that they follow, they do it because they think the world would be a better place if they did it. People would be happier. People would be more successful. Uh, and generally everyone would, the entire population would be better off. If you can stick to that, that one uniting concept, because we all want that generally, unless you're a sociopath. So uh, if you can focus on that kind of thing, you will always have common ground. And if you can speak to someone with respect, whether it's a coach or another coach, your athletes, whoever, you find that common ground and you move forward. Because once you have the common ground, you can be in more in search of truth and have real conversation. If you take that same approach with your clients and your athletes, you find your common ground first. That is what develops your relationship and it develops trust. Once you have those things, you can start introducing different ideas because it's, you know, I don't want to use the term safe space necessarily, but it becomes a safe environment for everyone to exchange ideas. And until you have that, mm -hmm. that groundwork for those relationships, it's hard to be a coach or do really anything in the world. Or even just mm -hmm. communicate in general. Yeah, for sure. You have to, you have to have respect and a common ground and a willingness to go back and forth. Yeah. I think the, the biggest thing that the uh, big setback, at least in today's like culture as well, uh, is assuming intent, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, when you start assuming someone's intent, uh, and you assume that intent to be true, regardless of what they're trying to say, that shows that you kind of like lack that empathy, right? Because now you're no longer considering them. Because I think right. what you're trying to do is that I try to be right. So I'm assuming your intent. Your intent must be as such. And if your intent isn't the same as mine, it means that I'm trying to shatter the common ground that we might have and it's completely not your doing, right? Mm. And then uh, I think that's the same with nutrition. So I, I have had uh, uh, a client come to me and be like, oh, the reason why I switch, coach to, co uh, switch from my previous coach is not that he's not good. It's not that he's not smart. It's because he uh, always assumed that I'm always underreporting. That's why I'm not uh losing weight right. so and that kind of hurts right that's what the 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 client told me and i'm like yeah you know like i always want to be charitable when it comes to the person and then at the end of the day right we just looked at it and then i said cool right if you really are you, your calories are really low you're also eating really like wholesome foods right but your weight is not going down i'll be like yeah uh you should go get some blood work done, you know, like yeah. go check things out because there might be some other condition that we cannot detect uh, just from, like just from SQL, right? Calories in, calories out. Yeah we, thing, we, yeah, we we can't really tell. But if someone were to assume intent, that person's intent is just, oh, cool, this person's lying or the person's always underreporting, man, like I might be completely overlooking that a person has a potential health issue, right? Because I think that whatever the person's doing, the person's always lying to me. So I guess for my, my myself and i'm sure it's the same with uh, you uh derek and chung as well you, you kind of like always uh i'm when i say that trust that the athlete i'm not saying trust to the point that you are deluded and completely believing but i'm trying to say that you trust the the person enough to consider 
there's always there's going to be truth in everything that person say right Dep- on and how much truth there is would obviously depends right on obviously the longer you work with someone you can kind of assume that the probability of them lying is lower if you know them well right mm-hmm. so it's always about the relationship that you build across time as well the more the stronger the relationship is the more truthful the athlete can be with you some athletes from the start like, oh i didn't tell you this because i feel like i don't want to burden you with, with stuff you know that, yeah we, yeah i get i get that a lot mm-hmm. it's like yeah. oh it's like I, I didn't tell you that because you know i i just came here for nutrition i'm like well you know in the end of the day like if yeah. if if you hate eating a piece of broccoli because existentially it caused you some trauma in the past like your <laughs> your mother threw a head of broccoli in your head and it, right. it caused it, it caused you to fall and cry and you have a bad relationship with broccoli it's like fucking eat it <laughs> cool <laughs> you know, there's, there's other there's other green vegetables out there that i'll probably would suggest you eat <laughs> just, yeah for you know, sure just be just be just be honest yeah well I, one of the biggest yeah. things that i do and especially for my remote uh, clients because it's easier much easier to convey this in person but i believe it's in my email signature it's in every weekly check-in reminder it's in the emails that I send out with all the plans, all the information there repeatedly, I'm telling people never hesitate to ask any questions whatsoever because the more questions that you can ask, the better chance we're going to be on the same page. If we're on the same page, we'll be able to function better as a team for your success. And on top of that, the more that you know about the process and the more that you understand exactly why you're doing what you're doing, motivation is much, much higher. It's much easier to commit to what the plans that you're doing if you know exactly why it's working and what it's supposed to do. So that's another level of communication that's incredibly important. And it's probably the number one thing that I wish my clients would do more. Some some do it probably overkill. I've, I've had a few emails from people, you know, generally, usually starting out, I'll have like 30 bullet pointed questions. I'm like, Oh God, this is going to take a while, but hopefully it's going to knock out, you know, a lot of long-term work. But, you know, after a while, you can only ask so many questions before you start thinking, okay, I'm starting to see the big picture here. Let's, let's just go put in the work now. And it's putting in the work up front to make sure everything is clear and concise and conceptually sound for them is the best thing in the world because then it's just okay now we go do the work and go it's fu- it's funny <laughs> it's funny you say that because um and i'm sure kedrick can relate to this as well um the okay for those who are listening out there who are clients of mine um or, or probably Derek and kedrick you probably relate to this if you it, it, at the start of your coaching journey if you start asking a lot of questions we'll probably answer them uh, but as you get further and further along what i tend to see is the less questions you ask but i see that you're checking in you're you're doing the training you're you know you're ticking like the weekly check-ins that i guess me like a personal one i i send out weekly check-ins you're doing them but you don't ask questions um and when i check in and say how things are going you're like everything's great you know there is a sign you know, just because like there isn't a lot of questions to ask, it just sometimes means that as 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 a client, more importantly as an athlete, you start developing um, autonomy, mm-hmm. and you start to understand the process. And then if our role as coaches then evolves from being like a person of I hate to use the word person of authority, and it becomes more of like. I'm here along with you on the ride. Exactly. For sure. Yeah, it's it's always yeah. a partnership. I tell people all the time, you are the CEO of your fitness journey. 
the most a, a coach can really do is consult. They can recommend. They can't make you do anything. Mm-hmm. You might like the idea of being submissive and having your coach make you do stuff, but it can never happen. I tell people, one of my favorite sayings is no one on this planet, doesn't matter how strong they are. It doesn't matter how smart they are. It doesn't matter how cunning, witty, whatever. No one has the power over you enough to keep you from quitting. So it's not, it's never a motivational thing. They can't really make you go forward either, but they can also not make you, you know, they can't keep you from stopping. Um, it, yeah, it's always I think, on I think that's yeah, I think that's all all really good. So it's like I think when you're on common ground, so I just like have this analogy because if you always see yourself as an authority figure, you are technically not on common ground because you are on higher ground, right? Because that's the definition of like authority, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like Obi, you, like Obi, like Obi Wan and Anakin, basically. Yeah, you had the, the higher ground. ground. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, you literally had the higher ground. Yeah, one of them, uh, basically literally morphed into something else uh, so uh, hopefully, hopefully hey, but, but 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 he came back to the light so autonomy yeah. there you go guys story, yeah. of, story <laughs> of anakin <laughs> and like see at the end of the day we want to try to to uh bridge that divide as much as we can all right and i i i i remember that this incident when i had with my uh athlete and what happened was my athlete was just like ranting, saying this, this is that, I feel like this. Then at the end of the day, I just like, oh, we've already established that relationship. I think that there's no, it's no longer a higher ground relationship, but it's yeah, pretty, pretty level. I said that. Tell me, is what you're saying what you really mean? Or are you just overreacting, right? And I say, take time to think about it, right? So I challenged the person and... After a while, the person just said, yeah, I apologize. I was just like, I needed to rent. I said, that's fine, right? You can rent. People need to rent. I just need you to know that you're renting and you don't actually want to quit. You don't actually think like the world's ending and my everything I've working been doing for nutrition has been wasted, you know? Uh, so like that, that is when you work with the athlete, not only can you one, detect the signs, but two, you have the, the ability to kind of challenge the person. But if you are right from the start, you'd be like, oh, cool, you know? No, you're just renting and everything you think is wrong. Yeah, that's that's probably not a good way to start the coaching relationship. So I guess uh, to put this to come uh, to a close, right? We really appreciate your time. We always ask our guests this question as uh, all our listeners out there would already know that the podcast essentially wants to draw things back to square one, right? So if we talk about how do we ensure uh, a successful coaching uh relationship right both from the athlete and coach's perspective bringing it back to square one what is one advice you would give and i guess if it's coaching an athlete it's probably one advice for each perspective so yeah maybe we can end with that the biggest thing is definitely being able to we'll just go back to empathy uh it really helps for coaches to have done what they're trying to coach obviously it that seems like a truism but you see that happen a lot when people are coaching things that they haven't done. Uh, I could never ask someone to do something that I either haven't done, haven't, yeah, I haven't done in the past or wouldn't do. So being able to hopefully have experience in what you're coaching and being able to put yourself in their shoes to figure out the best way to communicate with your client or athlete. I think that's the biggest thing for developing those personal relationships that are fruitful long-term. Mm. Yeah. Well, 
that's a really, really good way to uh, summarize the episode, Derek. So hope all of you listeners out there who are coaches or athletes or clients, whatever it might be, uh, definitely got some perspective out of the episode. We definitely went down a couple of rabbit holes there. Um, but if you want to reach out to uh, Derek uh, or just get some help from Derek, where, where can people find you? Shoot your socials. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. On, and where, where can people find you? On Instagram, I'm at Wilcox Strength Inc. W-I-L-C-O-X Strength Inc. Uh, Facebook, you can look me up by Derek Wilcox or Wilcox Strength Inc. on there as well. You can go to the Renaissance Periodization coaching page, look up our team members. My biography is there if you want to see some info on there. That's also where we do our coaching on the website. So you just sign up on there and you can request me as a coach if you like. Well, there you go, guys. Well, hopefully um, you found this episode awesome if you like it give it a thumbs up if you're the one of the five viewers on youtube uh <laughs> or give it a good review on i don't know spotify itunes share it like it subscribe and yeah thanks for coming on derek my pleasure guys i enjoyed it